Great. Good morning, everybody. Um, as Rob said, my name is Ryan. Um, my wife and I normally serve at Copper Mountain Community Church, um, but we love DCC. And we, um, anytime we get an opportunity to step in and help with worship or preach when Jim's not here, um, it's just a blessing. And so we're, I'm glad to be here. I am going to start off with just a word of prayer. Pray that Jim gets home safely so I don't have to do this again next week. And then, uh, no, I just, uh, and then just pray about the message today. So would you join me? Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather. If the last few years taught us anything, it's that gathering embodied, being with people physically, it's a gift. And it should not be taken for granted. And church is a, com uh, is a community where we come to be formed in community, not just individually. And so, um, Lord, I just thank you for your word and what it teaches us, how it challenges us. And I pray that you would just uh, be over the service today. That you would help us to really wrestle with, chew with, um, the things that we're going to be talking about from your word. We don't want to be people that just come in, attend a service, hear a couple of things, and then walk out and forget it. We want to be a people that really wrestle with and chew on the things that you say in your word. And we want to take them into the communities that we live in because we want to see change happen. And so I uh, just pray that you would be over us today, be with Jim as he travels home, bring him home safely. Amen. All right, so it was my junior year of college during my fall semester, and it was a Thursday night, I remember that. And I was working on a paper that needed to be submitted to one of my professors the next morning, and in typical fashion, I had procrastinated on that paper because college is busy, and I had other classes that I needed to attend to. But in a much more real sense, I had procrastinated on the paper because I was focused on other things that were not super productive, like Call of Duty or Modern Warfare. Yeah, it was getting late, and I wanted to consult somebody else that was on my hall in the same class about the assignment before, I, before he went to sleep. And so I jogged out of my room to have a quick chat with him, and after a few minutes of mutual complaining about the assignment and, and getting some clarification, we, we parted ways, and I returned to my room. Um, but as I was approaching my room, I noticed that my door, which I had left wide open, had been nearly closed, and that all of my lights, which I had left on, had been turned off. And when I entered my room, I noticed that one of the guys um, on my hall was sitting on my futon, which was strategically placed between my bed and my roommate's bed, and he had that small little spotlight from those floor lamps sitting on him, fixated on him. Understandably, I was a little shaken. This is not how I left my room. When I left my room, it was a bright and cheery um, place and had everything that I needed for a, a late night of productive last-minute paper writing. But when I returned, it looked like a scene from like some sort of suspense thriller. Um, you know the kind where an unsuspecting walks into his or her home and after a long day of work, only to be surprised by a villain that's been waiting there all along. It was a little creepy. Now, I should mention I was an RA, so I was used to unannounced visits Students would come to my room all the time to complain about their roommates, to get me to unlock their doors, which happened all the time, um, or to chat about their most recent relationship issue or failure. This was different, though. This felt darker. And so after taking in the scene and, and mentally gearing up for whatever this was, I addressed the young man sitting across from me. Hey, man, what's going on? Nothing. Silence. 
Are you doing all right? Like, is there anything I can help you with? Nothing. A wall of silence. And at that moment, I noticed that the young man, um, a new friend of mine, he had been crying. And even though he was staring at the floor and wasn't looking up, I could see glimpses of what had once been tear marks on his cheeks. So I waited for a moment to see if he would start talking, but nothing. And, and so once again, now while pulling up my desk chair to sit close to him, I gently said, hey, man, are, are you all right? But again, nothing. So I decided to just sit there. While I desperately wanted him to speak up and to tell me what was wrong, to break this awkward silence, I quickly picked up on the fact that this was one of those moments where you just need to sit there patiently and silently. So while I was sitting there, I noticed that he had been doing this weird thing with his right arm the entire time. And at first, I thought it was just this nervous twitch, like he had something he wanted to say, but he was, just, he was too nervous to say it. And maybe you've been there where you have something that you need to get off your chest, and you, you know it's important to say, but you don't quite know how to find the words to say it, and so you're kind of doing all these little nervous, twitchy things until the words finally come out of your mouth. And that's what I thought that this was. But after a while of him doing this, I started to notice that he was bleeding. There were multiple cuts on his arms, and they were not small. And when I noticed the cuts, as gently as I could, given the situation, I quickly moved toward him and asked what had happened, because this is not a small deal. And it was at this moment that he broke down, and he just started sobbing. He latched onto me for a brief moment, wiping his tear-stained cheeks on my shoulders, and he finally broke the silence. And through the sobbing, he said, Ryan, I just can't do it. I can't do it anymore. What can't you do? What's wrong? And then the words that no one wants to hear came, and he said, I can't do life anymore. I'm miserable. I can't seem to kick this depression, and I'm afraid that I'm going to try it again. Try what again? Taking my life. I tried in high school and I failed, but I've been thinking I want to try again because I'm miserable. I'm not like everyone else and I have nothing to offer. And all I could do at this moment was hug this young man. And after several minutes, which felt like an eternity of hugging him, as tight as I could, I tried my best to reassure him that I was there for him no matter what and that I wasn't going anywhere. We would sit there as long as it took, but he was not going to leave my room because what he needed in that moment was a friend. Now, I'm not going to take you through all the nitty-gritty details of that night, but two things you should know. Um, Number one, that young man did not take his life. In fact, he is doing extremely well nowadays, and that night was a turning point for him, And, and not because of me, but because, really, he had uncovered a lie that he had believed ever since he was a kid, which leads me to my second note. Number two, this young man had suffered from years of severe depression because he had been living by a false narrative. And I want to be careful here because I know depression is a unique thing and everybody experiences it differently. So what I'm about to say was unique to this young man's experience. But this, uh, you need to know that this student, he had a slight physical impairment that caused him to constantly compare himself to others. And this comparison left him feeling like he was less than. Like he, he, I mean, he could do everything that everybody else could do, But he looked a little different, and he hated that. He hated that he was different. It wreaked havoc on his mental health, and he began to believe the lie that he was not as good as other people, that he couldn't offer as much to others. 
And now I've played that night over and over and over again in my head a thousand times. And as I continue to think about our conversation that night, I can't shake the notion that this young man's depression was the result, a result of a faulty view of who he was. I mean, he was a Christian, but his understanding of what it meant to be an image bearer was way off. And so he ended up living into a lie that wreaked havoc on his mental health. In his latest book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer revisits the three oldest enemies of the church and of our souls, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in this book, John Mark argues that we are at war, but not with um, guns or or foreign political leaders. Um, He argues that we are at war with lies. And as John Mark put it, quote, the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. End quote. I think John Mark is right. We are bombarded with narratives that are not only false, but that are disorienting. The reason we let these narratives in is it's not because we're like, I just need this extra little bit of thing in my life. Like, we let them in because we genuinely don't know what to think about them. I mean, they seem true enough. Half-truths mixed with constant pressure to assimilate to to the masses because you're in the minority is a perfect recipe to get caught up in lies that can radically redirect your life and your behaviors. It's not that, like, and and as I was thinking about that, I was like, is this not what happened to 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 the paralytic who was lowered through the roof so that Jesus could heal him? You guys know the story. Think about it for just a second. Four men bring their friend, who happens to be paralyzed, to Jesus seeking a miracle. And after lowering him through a roof because they weren't able to get to Jesus through the crowds, Jesus addresses the young man. And what does the text say? Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why would Jesus say that? Sure, I mean, he might, have said, he might have said it to teach us that sin is really our biggest issue in life, or he may have said it in order to pointedly tease out a bit of his identity in front of the religious leaders. But I cannot imagine that this is what the young man was hoping to hear at first. Because it was obvious that he came for a very specific reason. Which begs the question again, why would Jesus say that? It's important to note that in Jewish culture and theology, it was a common belief that if you had some sort of physical disability, that it was due to some sin that you committed, sin in your life, or that your parents committed. And so the disability was the result of God, God punishing you for that sin. And so here's this man who has probably been relegated to a life of begging in order to make ends meet, sitting in front of Jesus. And Jesus knows what people think about him. Jesus knows what people have said about him in front of his face and behind his back. And Jesus knows that it is only a matter of time before these lies that you hear about yourself or that he had heard about himself over and over and over again started to take root in his life and his heart. And then he started to believe that these things were true about himself. And so Jesus forgives this young man's sins first because he he needed this man to know that God was not mad at him, that God loved him so, so much and so deeply. That's why Jesus forgave this man's sins first, because he knew that if he had just healed the man's legs, then, then he would have not been truly healed, not fully at least. 
Now, I say all that because we struggle with the same problems. There are a lot of false narratives out there that are vying for your attention and are vying for our devotion. We don't have time to address them all, but today I'm going to focus on the one that we've already alluded to, image. Specifically, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Now, a little while back now, um, I was interviewing for a program that required me to complete an hour-long oral theological exam. Super fun. During the exam, two individuals peppered me with questions that jumped all over the theological and biblical map. But there was one question in particular that left me reeling that day, and it was this. Ryan, could you tell us what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God? What does it mean to be an image bearer? I confidently rattled off my answer, um, detailing all of the components that I had learned over the years of study, um, my years of study, our intellect, our ability to reason, our ability to work and to bring about things that flourish, our ability to communicate and relate with one another and with our creator, our ability to rule, to be creative and to act justly. And after a few more thoughts, I wrapped up my answer. Then came a reply that I was not expecting. Ryan, thank you. I was wondering if you could clarify some things for me, though. You see, my daughter is severely disabled. She's nonverbal and unable to perform everyday tasks that others would consider normal. She needs assistance with everything that she does, always has. So given your answer, how do you think she represents the image of God? Is she made in the image of God, or is she somehow less of an image bearer because she is unable to work, communicate, rule, think, reason like the rest of us? Stunned, I sat there for a moment, speechless, trying to muster up a thoughtful response. Because now I'm considering my beloved sister-in-law who has Down syndrome. Of course she is an image bearer, and definitely not less of an image bearer. My sister-in-law has actually taught me more about love and joy in relationships with others and with our creator than the most astute and experienced professor could ever teach me. There's a love and a joy present in her life that is completely unencumbered. There are no walls. It's a given. She's just going to love everybody that comes into her life. Now, this question was in the middle of my interview, but when I left that day, it was the only question that I could think about because it unsettled me. It rocked some things in me to the point where all I wanted to do was revisit my understanding of what it meant to be an image bearer. I was completely enamored with the subject, and the more that I thought about it, the more I thought about the implications of what our beliefs about this subject actually mean. How does our understanding of image shape and influence our thoughts and our behavior? And how does our understanding of image shape and influence our relationships with our neighbors and with our creator? And after a few months of study and hopefully many more to come, I've come to the conclusion that we often live into a false narrative when it comes to image. I want to be careful because I don't, don't get me wrong, like I don't think that all of our beliefs on this subject are completely off, but I would contend that they are definitely a little misdirected, misguided. So typically when we think of what it means to be made in the image of God, we think of traits and our capabilities, like our ability to reason and communicate and to rule. We think of how we as humans are, are, are different from the animals, and, and, to, and that makes sense to a degree. But by reducing image of God to traits and capabilities, we make it all about things that we have and about who we are in that moment. And don't miss that. 
because you will not always be as capable as you are now. So what happens to your definition of image if that's all that it is, is about capabilities and traits? It's a slippery slope, and I would argue that it's a dangerous one because what happens is when we start to, like, we, is what we actually start to compare ourselves with others. So something that was meant to be attributed to the whole is like attributing dignity and worth to everyone starts to become individualistic. And then if we're not careful, image bearing starts to become about gradation. Whoever exercises those traits and those capabilities best is more of an image bearer than others. So those who don't exercise those traits or capabilities or don't exercise them well are not as much of an image bearer or or, potentially not worth the protection that they are due as an image bearer. And you can see where this line of thinking leads. Mass genocides, racism, sexism, at both the individual and institutionalized levels. Or to make it more personal, like my friend from college experienced, it could lead to severe mental health issues. If we don't embody or exercise those traits and capabilities as well as others, then are we just less than? Like, are we destined to live mediocre lives, void of the fullness of God's blessings? Is God keeping something from us? And if so, why? Are we destined to live lives that are just ruled by our sin, unable to conquer through the Spirit because we are somehow less than or have less, less of God in us? Here's the thing, and I know you all know it to be true, is we live our lives by the narratives that we are told and that we're sold. But those narratives have implications, even when they are well-intentioned. There there are implications to the things that we believe because we end up living according to those beliefs. We live into those beliefs. And so I would like to argue today that we cannot reduce image, being made in the image and likeness of God, simply to traits and capabilities. Those are important. Yes, for sure. But that's not all it is. And I would argue that it's not even the most important Being made in the image of God is so much deeper and so much more profound than our capabilities. It's broader than that. It has to be because it applies to all of us, regardless of how capable you are. Every human being, regardless of ability, is an image bearer worthy of dignity, respect, and honor, and protection. So what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? I'm going to spare you the hours that I have poured over this and just give you... Uh, my conclusion, which I hope is okay. And if you are interested, we can find another time to talk about it. But I'm going to finish by giving you two passages that I think um, bring this to a close. It seems simple and probably familiar, but given the Hebrew and Greek understanding of image and likeness, being made in the image of God is more about connection than it is about capability. We are made in the image of a Trinitarian God who has a special connection and relationship with one another. That is who we represent. It's a connection that is, it's entirely unique to anything else in creation. It's a connection that develops and matures and moves in a particular direction, a direction that reflects the divine image of our creator. So in other words, we have a connection with our creator that is unique and that is also full of potential. Potential that, and please hear me on this, that not even sin could take away. When the fall happened and sin was introduced into the world, it messed things up in a pretty significant way. I think you all would agree. 
We, we experience broken relationships. We experience corruption on every kind of level. We see this, right? It impacted our ability to reason well, to rule well, to relate well. But it did not rob us of our status as image bearers. That was always retained. And I think that's important to note because while sin definitely damaged significantly human attributes, it did not damage the fact that we are created in God's image. Humans, whether they take full advantage of it or not, have always had a special connection with their creator that is full of potential. This is why even after the fall, Noah is told, whoever sheds human blood by other humans must his blood be shed. For in God's image, God has made humankind. This tells us that there's a profound connection between human beings and God to the point where God has a very personal stake in human life. Or in the book of James chapter 3, verse 9, we learn that even cursing people is wrong because people are made in God's image. While people may be sinful and hard to love, and trust me, I know that people, including myself, are hard to love. It's just true seemingly unworthy of our attention, that does not take away and or diminish the fact that they are still image bearers. There's a special connection with God that needs to be honored. Restraint needs to be shown. In short, we need to, we need to learn um, that respecting our fellow, fellow human beings is rooted in something deeper than their attractive attributes. So again something we need to be aware of. While sin messed things up badly, it did not rob us of our status as image bearers. That's a connection that's still present, whether it's realized or not, and it's full of potential. And if you leave here not remembering anything else, remember that, that it is full of potential. Let me share two quick stories from Scripture that I think um, make this a little bit more tangible. And we're going to start with uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. But here's some context. Um, You guys are in the book of Exodus right now with Pastor Jim. Um, So spoiler alert, Moses dies. After Moses died, Joshua assumed leadership of the Israelites. And after 40 years of wandering in the desert, God chose Joshua to lead his people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And it was a task that the Israelites had failed at 40 years previously, prior When God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, after being um, delivered, he brought them into the wilderness, and that's where he introduced himself. He gave them a law to live by and encouraged them that they were his chosen people and that they were going to represent him to all the other nations. Now, not long after this took place, God brought them to the edge of the promised land, and some spies went in to scout out the land. And when they came back, they said, it's a great land but we can't take it. And they instilled fear in all the people. And so a narrative, you see that, a small little narrative, a lie, just took root in their minds and it infected the entire camp of people. The entire people rebelled and they didn't enter the promised land. God had big plans for them, but they chose fear over trust and so fear robbed them of their future. But now, after 40 years and a generation, they're ready to try again. Only this time with a new leader, Joshua. Now, before they embark on this important and long-awaited conquest, God gives Joshua a very important pep talk, and this is what we're going to read. 
So Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After Moses, the Lord's servant, died, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Get ready. Cross the Jordan River. Lead these people into the land that I am ready to hand over to them. I am handing over to you every place you set foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert in the south to Lebanon in the north. It will extend all the way to the great river Euphrates in the east, including all Syria, and all the way to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to resist you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not abandon you or leave you alone. Be strong and brave. You must lead these people in the conquest of this land that I solemnly promised their ancestors I would hand over to them. Make sure you are very strong and brave. Carefully obey all the law my servant Moses charged you to keep. Do not swerve from it to the right or to the left so that you may be successful in all that you do. The law scroll, um, this law scroll must not leave your lips. You must memorize it day and night so you can carefully obey all that was written in it. Then you will prosper and be successful. I repeat, be strong and be brave. Do not be afraid and don't panic, for I, the Lord your God, am with you in all that you do. God encourages Joshua to be courageous and tells him not to fear or to panic, and I get it. Because he's now following in the footsteps of Israel's greatest prophet that had ever lived. Which is strange since Moses wrote that about himself. But here he is. He's, he's following the man who, who did all these signs in Egypt, led an obstinate people through the wilderness up to the edge of the promised land. And now Joshua has to take the task, is now being handed the task of being the one that has to lead them into this land. That is, those are big shoes to fill. And so, and so God encourages Joshua to be courageous. Don't fear. Don't panic. And in hermeneutics or in Bible, in Bible school, they teach us anytime there's repetition, pay attention. It's important. Three times he says this to Joshua. Why? Because God knows how we operate. We so easily believe lies about who we are and what we're able to accomplish. And so God exhorts Joshua to be courageous. But what is that courage based on? God's presence. Joshua, be strong and courageous because I promise to be with you. I will never leave you nor abandon you. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And he watched how God was with him through all of it, the bad stuff. Joshua's courage was not, was not to be grounded in his ability to lead well or his ability to win battles. Joshua's courage was to be grounded in the fact that God would be with him and that God would go before him and that God would use him to accomplish things that he could never accomplish on his own. That is what his courage was to be on based on. So I think, I would contend that God was teaching Joshua about what it means to be an image bearer. Joshua, your ability to represent me to the people you are leading and to the nations that surround you will not rest on your capabilities. Your ability to represent me to the people will rest solely on your connection to me. Will you be close or will you be far? One more. One more example out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read verses 7 through 10, but it's important that you know that at this point, um, throughout the Corinthian letters, uh, Paul is writing to defend his apostleship to this church in Corinth. It's a church that he planted. 
um, years ago, but some bad players had entered the picture while Paul was out traveling and planting other churches. And so these bad players said, hey, I don't know if Paul's really the guy you should be listening to. I think you should question his authority and his ability to teach. And so this, so letter after letter, we have Paul defending himself before this church that he planted. So verse, um, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, so that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me, so that I would not become arrogant. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient were enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So then, I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I am content with my weaknesses, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For wherever I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had just, given, had just finished giving a list of his credentials, what makes him worthy of their respect and his attention, his lineage, his sufferings for Christ, his special revelations and visions. And he fi- finishes by saying, and God gave me a thorn in my flesh to keep me humble so that he would not become arrogant. Why would God do this? To teach him about the importance of dependence to teach him about the importance of connection. Paul is an apostle. He's a messenger of the good news. He preaches and he plants churches. He disciples people and he coaches them how to run their newfound church communities. And things are taking off. I mean, at one point during one of his missionary journeys in Thessalonica, his opponents accused Paul of turning the world upside down. Things are going well. Things are moving. Yeah, there's a lot of pain. There's sleepless nights. There's shipwrecks. There's heartache. But God is moving in some pretty powerful ways. And it would be tempting for anyone experiencing that kind of success, even in the midst of hardship, to to start to get a little bit proud. Look at what I've built. And so Paul is given a thorn in the flesh to teach him that that God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace alone is sufficient. So similar to Joshua, Paul is being taught that his worth and his significance did not come from his abilities. It came from his connection and reliance upon the Lord. Paul was able to do everything that he was able to do because of his connection to God. And so what we learn from these two stories is that connection to and dependence on God is central to what what it means to be created in God's image. We should not deify human capabilities. That's not what being made in the image of God is focused on. As Christ redeems us and as we begin to grow in his likeness, sure, our abilities, our attitudes, our behaviors change. They're slowly restored, and we're better able to reflect God's image to the world around us. But our status as image bearers does not revolve around abilities. It's founded in our connection to our creator. At the end of the day, we produce what we become, and we become what we believe. Joshua and Paul learned to believe that their significance was grounded in their connection to God. And then God harnessed their full potential by working in and through them to accomplish things that they would never have been able to accomplish on their own. And that's when we see a glimpse of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, where our fullest potential is realized as a result of our connection, our connectedness to God. And that's what it means to be an image bearer. That's what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Do not allow yourself, as far as it depends on you, to live by false narratives. And if you have kids... Think, like, talk to them about what they're learning about themselves. 
Talk to them about what they believe about themselves. Do not let them live by false narratives. Ground yourself in the reality that you have been made in the image of God and allow that to inform your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an important topic because it is true that we produce what we become and and we live according to what we believe and and we want to believe that you care for us, that you're not done with us, that you work in and through our deficiencies (laughs) to accomplish things that we could never even imagine. And I pray that you would help us as we're learning to believe this about ourselves, that we would start to see others in this light, regardless of where they stand in relationship to you, regardless of what they believe, that you would help us to approach them with love, recognizing the full potential that sits within them as an image bearer. If we did that, Lord, if we could learn to live that way, man, what kind of transformations we would see in our communities if we learned to live according to your design and actually treated people the way that you've designed them. Forgive us for those moments where we don't do this. And I'm so glad that you're not a God who just like gets mad at us when we fail to do this. We are, we are committing to walking this journey with you um, imperfectly. We're not going to do it great all the time, but yet you still love us and you're patient with us as a good father is. You continue to reassure us and nudge us along. So help us to trust you more, Lord, in your name. Amen.